0: Hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Uranium Market Minute. Today is Friday, July 8th, and this is episode number 149. My name is Justin Hune. I am your host, the founder and publisher of the Uranium Insider Pro newsletter, the only investing newsletter that focuses solely on uranium and publishes on a regular monthly basis. As always, nothing that you see or hear in this podcast is intended to be investing advice. I'm not your financial advisor. This is not financial advice. Please always do your own due diligence when it comes to investing and always take responsibility for your own choices. All right. Wrapping up the week. Actually had a decent week. Looks like possibly we're in the early stages of kind of putting in a basing pattern here. A lot of charts showing double bottoms, not a whole lot of volume happening here, but uh, there was some interesting news out of Kazakhstan this morning. I want to talk about that. In the mailbag section it's going to be a relatively short episode today i realize that most of the time that i say that i end up talking for 20 minutes today it's going to actually be short all right mailbag section let's jump right into it spot price of uranium down about 50 cents today 47.63 a pound that's on the back of Sput buying hundred thousand pounds yesterday They are now holding 56.9 million pounds of uranium. They purchased almost 16 million pounds year to date, still sitting on 60.3 million in cash. Their assets under management now 2.77 billion. URA, 960,000 shares redeemed. That's what they reported today. And that has to do with the selling that happened on Tuesday. As I've mentioned multiple times before, we have about a three-day lag with URA reporting. Looks like the the lag time was about the same for URM as they also reported shares redeemed. Fifty thousand shares redeemed for URNM, that gave rise to two point nine million in mandated selling, and URA's nine hundred sixty thousand shares redeemed was twelve point six million in mandated selling. I said yesterday that Tuesday had the feeling of ETF selling, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. That happens when the ETFs are trading um, at a discount to NAV, basically the selling pressure on the ETF itself is greater than the selling pressure that's happening to their underlying holdings. And when that happens, the ETFs actually um, sell down their holdings to buy back shares to close that discount to NAV. And the opposite happens on the other side, when the buying of the ETF is, um, is more in volume, in terms of volume, it's happening at a faster rate than the buying of the holdings that this ETF holds. They end up getting to this premium to NAV where the ETF itself, Uh, its net asset value is greater than uh, what they're actually holding. And in that case, they actually issue shares and they buy some of their underlying holdings to shrink that premium to NAV. So with this uh, share issuance, uh, excuse me, with this uh, share redemption, we saw combined between the two ETFs, about fifteen half million dollars of selling by the ETFs on Tuesday. Tuesday was the bloodbath, and that certainly uh, led to that, and that certainly didn't help, right? Seeing that that flywheel go in reverse. The joint assets under management, the ETFs, is back back above two billion, at two point one billion, uh, just over two point one billion, still nearly almost one and a half billion below the highs of April. That's really an astonishing pullback in terms of assets under management for the ETFs in such a short period of time. Um, let's go ahead and quickly look at the charts. URA trading up almost 1% today, but on basically zero volume. One of the lowest volume trading days of the past year. Um, really nothing happening here in terms of volume, but it does look as I've mentioned a few times over the past couple of weeks, the sellers seem to be exhausting themselves a bit here. We saw a little bit of a continuation of the nice moves yesterday. The S&P actually closed negative on the day. So to see our puppies up even even half a percent, 1%, 2% was very nice to see. But again, the volumes aren't there. This is not not a breakout volume uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So we're still not out of the woods here. However, things are definitely looking like they're uh, turning a little bit more positive. Obviously, we'd like to see a follow through on that. And unfortunately, unless we have a specific catalyst that's uh, uranium specific, that will move our sector aside from everything else that's happening, whether that's a big jump in the spot price, whether that's news about uh, sanctioning Russia, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not holding my breath for either of those things at this moment. So I think that we are going to likely move largely based on. How the markets react to the cpi numbers coming in next week so we'll probably trade on light volume in either direction monday and tuesday leading up to that uh, cpi so let's look at the sprout physical uranium trust here spot trading up 1.3 percent on the day although it did sell off substantially from its highs on the day we're still uh and slowly closing that discount to nav we're probably at about a nine percent discount to nav here after the spot price dropped 50 cents today, but the trust traded up 1.29% on the day. Still, like I've mentioned um, multiple times over the past many weeks, if not months, where's the volume? The volume's not there. The institutional interest is still uh, largely held by the um, by the unique funds that are either uranium specific or at least have a substantial focus on the uranium sector that are buying up shares on the cheap from retail that is panic selling. Uh, we are still not looking at a broad scale um, movement into this sector by institutional money. And we will see that in the volumes, but we'll see that in the volume of ETFs and the volume in Cameco, et cetera. On that note, how's Cameco doing? Flat on the day, traded up, traded down, ended up basically exactly perfectly flat on the day. Not up, not down, not nothing. And again, one of the lower trading volumes that, uh, that we've seen over the past four months, So really nothing happening here until, like I said, we see some kind of specific catalyst for Uranium or we see risk come back on in the markets in conjunction with a rising spot price, et cetera. Lastly, let's take a look at URA relative to the S&P. Um, we are back above that lower trend line for URA. We still haven't regained it for URNM. And URNM, of course, is more pure is 100% pure play to Uranium. URA is not. However, URA has uh, better, better liquidity. And um, I tend to look at that first in terms of gauging institutional interest. And looking at this, we are still outperforming, making a higher low so far in terms of outperformance of the S&P. I would like to see this recover and bounce again as we did. Back in late January, early February, did not make a higher high. And that obviously led to an additional sell off that we've seen over the past few months. All right, Uh, mailbag section. There was some news today about Kazakhstan that I thought was very interesting. The news story um, that was published by Babel.ua, I will put the I'll put the link to this article in the show notes, and I suggest that you check it out. It's a very short article. And honestly, the actual news that came from today is probably less important than some of the bullet points shared in this article. And honestly, I, I don't know how important the news from today is, but I think it speaks to something greater than probably what the actual fallout from this will be. So the title the, the the headline here, Kazakhstan withdraws from the CIS agreement on the Interstate Monetary Committee. Kazakhstan withdraws from the Commonwealth of Independent States Agreement. Um, This is a a decree from President Tokayev. And essentially this uh, current interstate currency committee was created for cooperation between post-Soviet countries in the currency payment and credit sphere. Um, So Kazakhstan seems to be planting their flag here, whether they're uh, trying to separate themselves from Russia in particular, or from even some of the other post-Soviet states. It looks like both here. And Tokayev has had, um, he, they, look, Kazakhstan is a very, very precarious uh, spot. They, they share a border with China. They share a border, a huge, the longest land border in the world. They share with Russia. Um, uh, the Belt China's Belt and Road basically goes through Kazakhstan uh, for the delivery of goods and trading into Europe. And some of the bullet points here are kind of like a timeline of what's been going on in Kazakhstan over the past month and a half. It's a very short timeline here, right? So this article says, the document on withdrawal from the agreement has already entered into force. On June 17th, the president of Kazakhstan stated at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, this was three weeks ago, where Putin was also present that his country will not recognize the DPR and LPR. That's the Donbass. Dukayev announced that he plans to increase oil supplies to Europe. That that was on the same day during this St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. And I don't know if you recall if any of you saw any of those speeches coming from the leaders of that of of this area, these areas. Um, But Tokayev definitely was firm in his stance and uh, is certainly not supporting Russia and trying to do what he can to separate himself from traditional ties of Kazakhstan to Russia, not only being part, obviously, of the Soviet Union, but um, since separation, still having large influence from Russia. Um, I recall speaking with people that had more of an expertise in this area of the world years ago, before Gazprom prominent parts of the public, basically saying, "Oh, well, how much do you expect Gazprom to produce?" And, and you know, their answer was whatever Putin wants. And there's, they have had traditionally a very, very large influence from Russia. With that said, they continue to seemingly seek more and more sovereignty. And it's a very, very uh, precarious uh, scenario here for Kazakhstan. And I think that uh, Art Hyde from Sager on Twitter said uh, said it best when he said, uh, Kazakhstan has always needed to walk a fine line between Russia, China, and the West. That's exactly where they're at right now. Now, China highly depends on Kazakhstan for uranium. China gets about half of the uranium from Kazatomprom, and they also have their own JVs with Kazatomprom. Um, and china produces a very very small amount of uranium now of course they have the husab mine they've got uh, a share of paladin's Langer heinrich got a number of other smaller projects happening they're you know they're exploring uh, a couple of miles deep in china looking for high grade uranium so they're trying to do what they can to secure uranium elsewhere but they are still very very highly rel- reliant on Kazakhstan as a source of uranium my opinion china is likely going to protect Kazakhstan from Russian influence, were it to go there. Either way, there's a lot of hair in this situation. All right, getting back to the story. Next bullet point in this article. After that, trouble began in the country's oil industry. This is after the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. Trouble began in the country's oil industry. The, the primary uh, primary district court of, I apologize, I'm going to butcher these words, Novorak, <laughs> Novorak, Novoris- closed an important terminal for the export of oil from Kazakhstan to Europe for 30 days. Then on July 6th, an explosion took place at the Kazakh uh, Tengiz field, killing two people and injuring three others. This is two days ago. Two, day, two days ago, on the same day, it became known that Kazakhstan is considering a ban on the import of goods to Russia and Belarus that have been sanctioned by the European Union, Great Britain, and the United States. The Ministry of Finance of the country has published an order for public discussion, which will last until July 22nd. Then yesterday Reuters wrote uh, Reuters wrote that Kazim Zomar Tokayev instructed the government to diversify oil supply routes by uh, oil supply routes to Europe, bypassing Russia. Okay. So the Kazakhstan oil industry as as big as the uranium industry is to Kazakhstan, it's a drop in the bucket compared to their oil industry. It's, it's a huge, huge oil industry. Um, I don't know where they are on the world stage in terms of production compared to Russia, Saudi Arabia, the United States, et cetera, but they're up there, they're up there. And it's a major, major um, source of GDP for for Kazakhstan. So they're taking steps to avert uh, shipping through St. Petersburg, shipping through Russia and seeking different uh, different shipping routes. We have heard, because Atomprom state the same thing that they're looking at alternate routes for shipping uranium from Kazakhstan. And that's going to take some time to really iron out the details on the shipping routes and get them, um, let's say, smooth. But for now, we're still looking at supply interruptions due to the situation in Russia coming from Kazakhstan. So I just want to bring that up. I thought that was significant. And I think that uh, anything that happens to the number one producer of uranium, and it's not like they're just barely number one, they're number one by a country mile. They, they produce 40% of the world's uranium, uh, possibly a little bit more than that. So what happens in Kazakhstan really matters to the uranium market. Um, one last note, we are there was a news story that was shared around Twitter this morning about um, Germany, uh, the Green Party in Germany, essentially voting to shut down, to in fact, shut down the last three nuclear reactors that are still running. They're scheduled for shutdown in December of this year. Obviously, there's been a lot of speculation and a lot of pushback against this decision due to the energy crisis they are currently in. Oh, gosh, it looks messy over there, guys. It really does. I mean, not just in Germany, but in Europe at large, but especially in Germany. And honestly, I, I am fearful of what's what could potentially happen this winter there for the people of Germany because this the situation is not their fault, largely um it's a few special interests that are they're that seeking to do this and to have the green party which is the pure definition of greenwashing, would be the germany the german green party um voting for expanding coal power and shutting down nuclear that's your green party it's really really shameful what these uh pieces of work are doing to the people and uh they should absolutely be ashamed of themselves Um, It's ultra clear that uh, the Greens, at least in uh, Germany, and the Greens in most countries, let's be honest, do not really actually care about the things they claim to care about. They don't care about the people. They don't care about the climate. They care about some particular special agenda that has to do renewables, that has to do with the green energy agenda, that has to do with potentially um, limiting people's individual ability to emit carbon, which is, a guess, a pollution, not just a gas that uh, greens the earth. I'm gonna end that there, I'm not gonna go there, but um, really sad to see that. So hopefully, hopefully, there's still time. There's still time to keep these reactors online. There's still time to restart two of the three they just shut down in December. And uh, that really would go a long way to helping the German people get through winter with diminished gas supply from Russia, which is what we're looking at on top of that. France's nuclear fleet is operating at about 50% right now. Half of EDF's reactors are offline. Um, This is due to maintenance. Uh, I think that a couple of them are out due to refueling outages, but most of them are maintenance and addressing issues with corrosion, etc. That's a whole other story. Um, France has done a terrible job over the past 10 years in terms of maintaining their fleet. And um, that has been underfunded. And now EDF now, that was, I think, 84% owner uh owned by the state edf now is 100 owned by the state so hopefully that leads to something good for edf and good for france's nuclear fleet and for the future of nuclear in france because as we've seen over the past year we've seen macron come out and state that they want to expand their nuclear fleet they want to build um, i think it was six and up to 14 New nuclear reactors by 2035. These are large EPR2. Um, so we really hope that uh, the 100% ownership of EDF by the state will lead to additional funding to address the problems the reactors are having now. And France is the largest exporter of electricity in the world, and they're and they're 70 plus percent nuclear. So with half of that fleet offline, that means hard times for the surrounding countries that are typically buying energy from France's nuclear fleet. So. It's not looking good going into the European winter, it really isn't, and it's, it's a shame to see that. Okay, um, I'm not going to rant anymore. Uh, I'm glad to see that we hung in there this week. We had a couple of decent days to end the week after a brutal start to this short week, at least in the American markets. And hopefully this is leading to a basing pattern and potential recovery in the Uranium stocks because things are looking bright for the industry, despite the aspects that I just mentioned in today's mailbag section. All right. Take care of yourself. Please have a great weekend. I will see you guys again next week. I appreciate all of you. Thank you for subscribing. Uh, Thank you for following me every day. I appreciate all the comments, even the trolls. I love you. All right. Cheers.